invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm reading uh, from the New King James Version. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the opportunity to preach the gospel this morning. I pray, Lord, that I will be filled with the same Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus and that your Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of each person who hears this message. Lord, help us to examine our hearts. Help us to know if we're right with you. And thank you that we can become right with you through Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help me to exalt Jesus this morning, and I pray this in his name. Amen. As you probably know, Mark was written especially for the Roman audience. And the theme of Mark is Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. And you know, when it comes to a servant, it doesn't matter so much what he says, but what he does that is the most important. And so in the gospel of Mark, there is less of the teaching of Jesus and more of the actions of Jesus. And one of the favorite words in the gospel of Mark is, straightway or immediately as Mark describes the action. Mark is more like a motion picture of the life of Jesus than any other gospel. Well, notice how Mark begins his gospel, and he does so rather abruptly. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has a grand announcement at the very beginning of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He begins with good news to share. 
I don't know about you, but I'm ready for some good news. You know, ever since the pandemic started, it seemed like it's just been bad news. But we have good news to share this morning about Jesus Christ. And in this opening section, Mark records testimonies of several dependable witnesses to back up his opening claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I want to present to you the evidence of these four witnesses that are given to us in the first 11 verses of this gospel. If you are not yet convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, I hope you'll be convinced today. If you already believe in Jesus as the Son of God, I hope you'll be even more convinced and that you'll do what Mark does and go out and tell others the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about the first witness this morning, the witness of Mark himself. Mark does not identify himself as the author, but tradition makes it very clear that Mark was the author of this gospel. And who was Mark? Well, Mark was uh, the son of a Mary who lived in Jerusalem, the same Mary that would host believers in the early church. Mark probably as an older teenager actually heard Jesus and witnessed some of the miracles of Jesus. Mark was probably led to faith in Jesus by none other than Peter who called Mark my son. And so what Mark writes includes some of his own eyewitness accounts as well as the accounts of Peter. Many believe that Mark contains um, uh, summaries of some of the sermons of the apostle Peter. So what is the witness of Mark according to verse 1? First of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. Long ago, God promised that he would send a Messiah, an anointed Savior, And the title Christ is given in verse 1, which means the anointed one. One who is set apart for a task and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the task. To be a great preacher, to be a great prophet and teacher, and to fulfill the task of being our Savior by dying for our sins. And so he was uh, the Messiah, Mark claims. And he also claims that he is even the Son of God. What dignity he ascribes to Jesus of Nazareth that he would be called the Son of God. And as you read the Gospel of Mark, he ascribes activities that only the Son of God could do. He calmed the storm. He caused the lame to walk. He even claimed in chapter 2 the divine prerogative of forgiving sin and did a miracle to prove that he had the power and authority to forgive sin. And so those of us 
that are believers, let us cling to this truth that Jesus is the God-anointed Savior, that He is the Son of God. Our faith rests on solid ground. Jesus is the Son of God. Even Isaiah the prophet said that He would be called the Mighty God. But we not only see the witness of Mark, but we also see in this text of Scripture the witness of the prophets. There was nothing unforeseen about the coming of Jesus Christ. He was witnessed to and foretold by the prophets. And so Mark immediately in verse 2 begins to bear witness to the, what the prophets had written about the Messiah. In verse 2, notice it says, as it is written in the prophets. And then in verse 2, he quotes from Malachi 3.1. In verse 3, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And so what did these prophets indicate about the coming Messiah? Well, they gave a sign of the Messiah's coming. Today, we believers are looking for signs of the second coming of Jesus. Well, in John's day, in Mark's day, the Jews were looking for the sign of the first coming of the Messiah. And What were the signs that God had given? Well, one of the signs is that he would raise up a prophet like Elijah who would be the forerunner and prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Mark pictures Uh, Christ as the coming messianic king. And in those days, if a king was going to visit a city or a community, they would send someone to prepare the way and announce his coming. And even so, God said, I'm going to send a prophet who will announce that the Messiah is about to arrive. Prepare for his coming. And so Mark is proving his assertion that Jesus is the messianic king by the very fact that prophecy said a prophet would arise, preparing the way of the Lord. And indeed, this sign was fulfilled, Mark indicates. How will we know that this is the prophet? Well, One reason is that he will cry in the wilderness. Verse 3, Mark says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, if you are going to preach to a lot of people, where would you preach? Well, one good place would be the temple courts where thousands would gather almost every day. You would not preach in a wilderness And yet the prophecy said that this prophet will preach of all places in a wilderness. I preached my first sermon just after my 18th birthday. 
And I was a little nervous about, you know, preaching my first sermon, and so I wanted to practice. And I loved being out in the woods, and so I went about a quarter mile into the woods near my neighborhood, and I built a pulpit with scrap lumber. And I would practice my sermon out there in the woods. And I really expected no one would ever hear me preach out there in the wilderness of the woods. But then one day I noticed some kid drawing ever closer, hiding behind trees, wanting to see this strange sight of somebody preaching out there in the woods. Well, I want you to know that's the only person that ever heard me out there in the woods. No crowd came to hear me practice my sermon after that. But John preached in the wilderness. And probably to start with, there were just a few people that would come to hear, and they would go and tell others about this one, and they knew prophecy. And here's this prophet in the wilderness, even looks like a prophet. He sounds like a prophet. Uh, is this the prophet that God said would come? And, and, and crowds increasingly would come to hear him preach. Yes, he would preach in the wilderness. Furthermore, the prophet said that he would essentially preach a message of repentance. In the last of verse 3, we see that the prophet would preach, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. His task was to prepare the way that people would readily receive the Messiah once he came. But he also said, if you're going to be prepared for the Messiah, you need to make his paths straight. You need to make straight whatever's crooked and not in line with the will of God. We're living in a day where people are living crooked and perverted lives, not straight and narrow according to the will of God. Listen, if you are going to have a right relationship with God, you've got to repent of your sin. You've got to straighten out your life. You need to live in accordance with the holy will of God. Otherwise, there will be a separation between you and God, both now and potentially for all eternity, if you don't repent. And by the way... There's an indication here in this prophecy that the Messiah would be the very Son of God. Did you notice it says in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. And in my translation, Lord is in all caps. What does that mean? That means it's a translation of the name of God, Yahweh. Prepare for the way of Yahweh. Yes, Jesus is the very Son of God. And so the prophet said that someone would come just before the appearance of the Messiah to prepare his way. He would preach in the wilderness a message of repentance. And folks, those prophecies were indeed fulfilled in John the Baptist. And so that leads to the third witness that's reflected in the 
text of Scripture, not only the witness of the prophets in Scripture, but thirdly, the witness of John the Baptist himself. Mark identifies John as the fulfillment of these prophecies. How do we know that? Well, he fulfilled the prophecy of the messenger. Yes, he did preach of all places in a wilderness. Verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness. He fit the description of the prophecy. We believe that he preached in the Judean wilderness, which was a vast wasteland. Since he baptized in the Jordan, probably north of the Dead Sea is where he primarily baptized in the Jordan River. Boy, he must have been some preacher for people to travel by foot or by donkey miles and miles to hear this man preach. You know, most preachers can't get a hundred people to come hear them preach driving in air-conditioned cars, sitting in padded pews in air-conditioned comfort, but yet John drew many people to hear him preach in a wilderness of all places. Oh yes, he fulfilled the prophecy of this messenger. He also, as the prophets predicted, indeed preached a baptism of repentance. The last of verse 4, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. These people, in fact all people, needed to repent. They had sinned and rebelled against God. They needed to repent. And so John preached repentance. John made people aware that they were sinners and merited the very judgment of God. And the truest way to evoke a longing for Jesus in the heart of of a person is indeed to preach that we are sinners, that we are not right with God, and we need a Savior who can make us right with God. But what was new about John baptizing, you see, they baptized, the Jews baptized Gentile proselytes. They were familiar with baptism in that case. But now he's coming along and saying, all of you need to be baptized. Not just Gentiles, but you Jews, sons of Abraham, need to be baptized as well. You have sinned against God. You have turned against God. You need to be made right with God. And so many Jews began to be baptized by John in the wilderness. And as they were going down into the Jordan River, it was a picture of them dying to sin and their old life and coming up out of the water and out of that Jordan. They are picturing that I'm going to live a new life of following Christ. And we also see in the last of verse 5 that they would confess their sins. You know what the word confess means? It means to agree with. God, what I've been doing is wrong. I have not been living right. I have not been following you. And Lord, with your help, I'm going to start following you. I confess my sins. Many people are going the wrong way in life, and they need to turn around. They need to repent of their sins. They need to turn to Christ. 
And indeed, John not only preached a baptism of repentance and the need to confess our sins, but he preached the hope of forgiveness. John proclaimed that such repentance could lead to forgiveness. He preached repentance and baptism for the remission of sins, as it says in the last of verse 4. That word translated remission or forgiveness means literally to send away, to send away. It reminds us of Leviticus chapter 16, where there was a ceremony to help people to see what forgiveness was all about and how it's possible. And they were required to take two goats. One goat would die for the people. Its blood would be shed. But the other goat, they would confess their sins on the head of that goat and drive it far into the wilderness, picturing that God will take your sin and send it far away. It reminds me of Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And the only way we can be forgiven, as John would later reveal, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, we also know that John was that prophet because of how successful he was. In verse 5, Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Oh, the appearance of John, the speculation that he could be the prophet who would prepare the way of the Messiah, the speculation that he might even be the Messiah himself caused many hundreds and thousands from Jerusalem and Judea to go hear this man preach and to be baptized by him. The prophets had been silent for over 300 years, but now God once more has raised up a prophet. Could this be the one that would prepare for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah? Oh, listen, John was highly successful. He must have been that prophet that God promised. By the way, John demonstrates that you don't have to have a church in a great location to have a growing church. You can have a church out in the wilderness. You can have a church in the woods, and people will drive to hear the Word of God and to experience the work of God in the hearts of people. John was highly successful, and he also fit the image of a prophet. In verse 6, we read, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. You know, Malachi 4, 5 says that God would send Elijah. And we know from 2 Kings verse chapter 1, verse 8, that Elijah dressed in a hairy garment, and a leather belt. And so when John came, 
I'm going to dress like Elijah. Well, he lived in the wilderness. You know, he would have simplistic clothes anyway. But this kind of dress tended to be the kind of dress that prophets would wear and became symbolic of the office of a prophet. And so he looked like a prophet in fulfillment of Scripture. His food was as simple as his clothing. Since he lived in the wilderness, there wasn't a lot of food in the wilderness. He had to live off the land. But one thing there was an abundance of from time to time, and there would be swarms of locusts. And so John made a diet largely of locusts. Now, how would you like to go home today and eat some locusts, okay? Well, John was willing to eat locusts. He probably made it a little better by pulling off the legs and the wings and the heads and roasting the bodies of the locusts where they're nice and crunchy and adding a little salt and adding a little honey. Uh, and it made it rather palatable and uh, good uh, for him to eat. By the way, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 22, God told the Israelites there are four insects you can eat. And locusts was one of those insects. Even to this day, certain Arabian tribes enjoy eating locusts. And now that we're living in the day of global warming... They're trying to get us now, seriously, they're, they're, they're saying that we need to start eating insects instead of uh, beef and pork. So maybe you need to start getting used to uh, John's uh, diet. Well, listen, you put all this together, the evidence is clear that John the Baptist was the prophet that God sent to prepare the way of the Messiah. And that means two things. One is, since he's a prophet, you better listen to what he says. You better listen to John say, you need, you need to repent. You need to listen to John say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Savior who would shed his blood as the Lamb of God. But this also means something really important. Since he was the prophet, and the evidence is overwhelming, that he was the prophet that God promised, then the Messiah must have come in his lifetime or shortly thereafter. Can you think of anyone else in the first century that fits the description of the Messiah like Jesus Christ. There is no one else. The evidence is overwhelming. And so we have the fact that he was the prophet that God has sent. But what was his witness? If we're to listen to what he say, what was his witness concerning Jesus? Several things that, that he said. That he is far greater than himself. Verse 7. He preached, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. You know, John was a great preacher. He, he had crowds, hundreds, thousands that would hear him preach. Many came to be baptized by him. He feared no one, even the king himself. He was a great preacher. And yet John says, someone's coming after me who is 
far greater than I am. And like any good preacher, he wanted the attention not on him, but on who he preached about, and that's Jesus Christ. Yes, he gave witness that he's far greater than himself, a far greater prophet. He's the Savior. And to illustrate, he referred to a common custom that when someone had a servant or a slave, they came home, and the first job was to make them to feel comfortable and to get them settled, to, to stoop down and unloose his sandals and to wash his feet, to serve him a meal. And he said, listen, I'm not even worthy to do that for Jesus. And so he's far greater Jesus is far greater than John the Baptist indeed. He has a greater baptism. In verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John baptized many of them with water. And if that baptism was a reflection of faith and repentance Faith in the coming Messiah, it indeed symbolized the reality of the washing away of their sins. But John says, listen, the true Messiah will have a greater baptism. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And indeed, that was symbolized at the baptism of Jesus when the Spirit came upon him. And as the Spirit came upon him and empowered him, even so, the Holy Spirit will come upon everyone who believes in him in repentance of sins. Yes, listen, you don't change your life. God changes your life by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the cleansing of the Word of God. You can't uh, resist temptation on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can't serve God effectively in your own strength. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And John says that he will baptize you and fill you with the Holy Spirit of God. I ask you this morning, you say you're a believer? Well, let me ask you this. Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is active and working in your life. Without the evidence of the Holy Spirit, you may need to question whether you're truly saved because Jesus baptizes his followers with the Holy Spirit. Finally, we not only have the witness of Mark and the prophets and the witness of John the Baptist, but finally this morning, we even have the witness of the Godhead. The Trinity is gloriously revealed here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all seen and heard from at the baptism of Jesus. First of all, Jesus' witness concerning his saving work is reflected in his baptism. In verse 9, we read, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, since Jesus was a sinless Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, why did He need to be baptized? He had no sin. Well, the answer is mainly 
that just as we identify with Jesus in our baptism, so he identified with us when he was baptized. He took on human flesh. And he was even willing to take upon himself the sins of the world when he died on that cross. And so, as he was baptized, it symbolized the death that he came to die for us. And it symbolized the resurrection he would surely experience. And so, Jesus bore witness concerning himself and his saving work. But also the Holy Spirit bore witness at the baptism of Jesus. Verse 10, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. As John raised him out of that water, Jesus saw the heavens suddenly split open. I don't know what it looked like, whether it was clouds splitting or something else, but out from that split the Holy Spirit descended as a dove upon Jesus. There was unmistakable form that enabled the witnesses to see that the Holy Spirit was now anointing Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ. But notice that the Spirit descended like a dove. Why a dove? Well, what does the dove symbolize? The dove symbolizes purity. The dove symbolizes gentleness, peacefulness, graciousness. And even so, this was a prophecy of the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be the first time. The Jews were looking for a warrior king. But Jesus was the gentle, loving Savior who would die for our sins and show us the way of God. Oh, he's coming again as the warrior king. And you better be ready. You better know Jesus before he comes. But he came the first time with gentleness like a dove. And since Jesus identified with our humanity, symbolized the fact that just as he was strengthened in his humanity by the Holy Spirit, we need to be strengthened by the same Holy Spirit. But finally, the Godhead bore witness by the Father himself. Verse 11, Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. First, the Father affirmed the deity of Jesus. You are my Son. You is emphatic in the original language. You uniquely are my Son. You are the very Son of God. And I am pleased with you. He was pleased with his son's willingness to be obedient to the mission of being our Savior, even though it would mean dying on a cross. I am so delighted in my son, God said. And so, how comforting is this little paragraph in John's gospel indicating that the son loves us enough to die to be our savior 
that the Spirit cooperates in strengthening the Son for this very task, that the Father is so pleased with His Son and His willingness to carry out this mission that He rends the heavens and speaks from heaven, affirming His delight in His Son, and that Jesus is indeed His Son. And so, we have four witnesses Four witnesses as this gospel begins that Jesus is the Son of God. The witness of Mark, the witness of the prophets, the witness of John the Baptist, and the witness of the Godhead. Four witnesses. You know, the Scripture says, At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter shall be established. And yet, John says, Here's four witnesses at the very opening of the gospel proving my assertion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, my question for you is this. What do you believe about Jesus? What is your verdict? Do you believe that he's the Savior that God provided for us? Do you believe that he is the very Son of God that has the power to forgive and the power to change our lives? If you believe that, if you are convinced as I am that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then let us share the good news with others. But if this day you arrive not yet believing, how can you not believe when confronted with such strong evidence? Oh, I call upon you to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus because Jesus will forgive you. He will give you his Holy Spirit. He will change your life. He will give you new purpose and meaning in life. Oh, as we sing the invitation hymn, wherever he leads, I'll go. I hope that you will say, I will follow Jesus in confessing my faith. I will follow Jesus in following him in baptism. Or I will follow Jesus in being an active member of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the strong witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here will know in their hearts as they leave this building today that this is what they believe. And Lord, help us to live like it. And I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.